Well, I don't think anyone says it better than Billy Joel when it comes to pressure. And uh, you know, our series corner, we've been talking about a lack of margin. When you have a lack of margin in your life, you have a lot of pressure. In fact, for many of us, that includes our energy, our time, and our money. A lot of space in a can, and when you're in life and life throws you some ups and downs, you're able to handle it pretty well, normally, as long as there's some space to think, some space to decompress. However, we're going to take a little water, dump it into our paint can, and we're going to heat it up. We're going to put this thing under pressure for a little bit and watch what happens. Under pressure, things change. In fact, the water molecules that are in this can, they're going to expand 1,700 times bigger just being put under heat. And you thought you had a little bit of extra space in there. You thought you had a little bit of extra room in there. And all of a sudden, under pressure, all of the things that are there begin to expand and take up all the room that was there before. And the reason we need margin in our life is because that's exactly what happens. All of a sudden, you have a week where you're not sleeping. Then the pressure of not sleeping adds to more pressure. And that begins to expand and take up our energy resources, take up our time resources, take up our financial resources. It's a lot more fun when everything's going up and financially, you're like, you know, budget's here, increase here, go ahead and spend a little bit, a little more slush fund than normal. You don't have to zoom in quite as much. But it's under pressure that all of a sudden the unexpected begins to expand uh, the pressure I can feel from my boss, from my kids, from my parents. And I didn't really expect there was going to be a health crisis. I didn't really expect that all, my, all of a sudden my, my daughter was going to go through a depression. It begins to create more and more pressure. And when that happens, things begin to magnify. Fears that are this big get magnified under pressure. They grow 1,700 times. And all of a sudden, I'm incredibly fearful. My expectations begin to grow. My assumptions begin to grow. Everything begins to expand. And then what do I do? I lose my cool. What does it mean when you lose your cool, right? I'm a little angrier than I usually am because I don't have quite as much space. I'm not as self-controlled. I fly off the handle. I cut off my son or daughter when they're trying to talk to me or my employees. It's under pressure. All those things continue to happen. What psychologists tell us is we begin to distort reality. We begin to catastrophize. We begin to magnify. Everything begins to move. And, and a lack of margin and pressure eliminates our ability to give our best of our time to the people we love, of our energy to the people we love, and of our money to the people we love because there's just too much pressure. And when that pressure comes to a crescendo... It's when all of a sudden we step back into normal life and, and normal life begins to rock a little bit. And normally we could handle it, but under pressure, it's not the same. Under pressure, we put ourselves back in the same circumstances and we're crushed. We're depressed. We're overwhelmed. And all of a sudden, what before was a hiccup in our day, eh, the boss changed the deadline, my quotas went up a little bit, all of a sudden I am crushed under the weight of ordinary circumstances. Because under pressure, without margin, everything gets distorted. And a lack of margin, a lack of pressure doesn't just affect me, it affects all the people around me. And maybe you felt that way this month, this week, or maybe the last couple weeks with all the magnification of fear, all the magnification of what's going to happen in unknown. 
And you have felt and sensed in the world today a lot of crushing of people's spirits because there just isn't the margin to handle it. Well, that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to continue to look at how a lack of margin, having extra resources, liquidity in our finances, extra doses of energy you can reach into when you've had that bad day, bad month, or had a very pressurizing year, and our time. How do we do exactly that? You see, pressure removes margin. And margin, a lack of margin, crushes your ability to give your best to others. We all want to give our best, but under pressure, we don't have the margin, and we end up not having the energy to give to our spouse. Not having the energy. We're there at the kitchen table, but not really emotionally available to our kids or to our parents. We just don't have the time. Hey, could you say that story in about two minutes? No, Dad, I'll wait till you can listen slower. And financially, when you don't have a portion of your money set aside to be liquid, all of a sudden, when a deal comes up to buy low, it's not liquid enough to make that, uh, th- that movement, right? When you don't have enough money liquid, all of a sudden opportunity comes to give financially to someone or to help someone out, and th- the money's all committed to something else, some spending, some investing, something else. So what would it look like for us to create financial margin so that under pressure you still have the ability to give your best time, your best energy? And today we're going to focus on the money like we did last week and your best financial resources to those in need. What would that look like? I want to give you two reasons. Two reasons why I would like you to keep some margin in your financial life so that you can give your very best to other people. Because I want you to experience the joy and the freedom of enjoying your enjoyments, being blessed with the blessings you have, and not feel the push and the crushing blow of a lack of margin. So two reasons. The first reason we're going to look at as to why we should keep some financial margin into our life is that if you don't plan to give big, you're not going to be able to give big. Right? Because you've already committed your money to different things. If you don't make a plan to put some margin in your life financially, you might say, I like the idea of giving big. Right? It's true of your energy too. I like the idea of having energy for my marriage. I like the idea of having time for my kids. But if you don't put that reservoir, if you don't plan so that you have left over to be able to give big, you're never going to be able to give big. And in this series, we've been looking at this rather bizarre concept from the book of Leviticus. The idea that God told his people that in an agricultural world not to cut their corners, to leave them, to put some margin in the corner of their lives so they had some leftovers. Leftover for themselves, not trying to suck every bit of profit out of every corner of their life. But in this passage in Leviticus, it connects the idea of not harvesting your corners with your ability to give financially to others. Look what it says. When you reap the harvest of your land... You shall not wholly reap the corners of the field. This is their finances. Don't use up and commit every aspect of your, your money to everything. Create some space, some margin, some liquidity. Do not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleanings from your harvest. So when you would pick up the stuff you did glean, as you're carrying the wheat, a few pieces, gleanings would fall. Don't feel like you need to go and pick every single little piece up. Leave some of that so that when people in your community who are poor or needy, a stranger, a widow, 
They would come and say, listen, I'm really going through a tough time. You'd say, that is fantastic. I have four corners available for you to go and work and harvest. And feel free to walk around where we already harvested and pick up the gleanings. That financial margin in the life of a, a landowner provided not only to get away from the pressure of having to get every little thing picked up and suck every bit of profit out, but it created space so they could give big. But the truth is, unless they plan to give big, don't cut the corners, they weren't going to be able to give big. Now, in 2012, my wife and I got a chance to come to Israel. In fact, we just had a team of folks who went to Israel from Horizon, just got back on Friday, and had a great time just discovering all kinds of sites. One of the sites that struck my wife and I was being at an old-time, old-fashioned, ancient farm, like you might have seen in Moses or Joshua's day. So this is my wife here, and we're hanging out. It's obviously, it's not harvest time. We're, we're actually pulling out rocks, and we're pulling out thorns, and we're thinking about Jesus' message about our, our life being like a field. And what I realized is these farms are right next to each other. Because they're right next to each other, when you think of financial giving, for example, in our culture, financial giving is this idea that, you know what, it's kind of private, and it's none of your business, and we don't talk much about it. But in this culture, you knew exactly who was the generous giver and who was kind of the thorny giver. Because you could literally look to your left or look to your right, and you'd say, well, John's family's pretty generous, because look at the size of their corners. Oh... Look at Julie and her husband, Stan. Apparently, they're, uh, they're not real generous people. They, they've left like a corner, like six little pieces of wheat. So it was very much a, a normal idea that communities would talk about, understand, and your generosity was on display. Your savings were on display. The portionality that you put in place so you could give big to other people, everyone could see it. And God designed it that money would be a community conversation. How can we find ways to make a lot, save a lot, and give a lot? In the words of John Wesley. Isn't that a great motto for life? Let's make a lot, let's save a lot, margin, and let's give a lot. But if you don't plan to give big, you're never going to be able to give big. And it's not because you don't have the resources. You've just committed it somewhere. Committed it to spending, committed it to savings, committed to long-term investments. What if you also committed a portion to be lavishly generous? We want to have a portion so that we can be lavishly generous with our money. I remember when my wife and I first got married, we were living in downtown Chicago. And I was still a full-time student during our, my senior year of high school, uh, college, rather, and, and she was uh, working full-time. But I remember even early on, when we were counting every dollar, we decided to set up a giving fund. And it was like $25 of each of our paychecks. And it felt painful. I mean, that was, that was a, a, a portion that we needed for something. But we felt like even when we were 21, 22, we wanted to be generous. And that little bit of planning we did, supporting a friend who was going to go and be a missionary and be a pilot, another portion that in case any time during the day and any time during the week and any time during the month, if we just felt like there was a, a moment that we felt nudged or felt propelled to give, we just knew both of us could use that money in any way to give to other people. Five years into our marriage, ten years of marriage, that number just kept going up. We gave regularly to our church. We gave a percentage of our income to our church, and that kept going up 1%, 2%, 3%, 4%. Then we had a separate giving fund. It was kind of a fun way to just give whenever things came up. In fact, we had some friends who have a very, very successful career to now, the career of their lawyers, and just doing fine, thank you very much. But during this season of their early life, they're going through a very difficult time. 
And they had told us about that because they were good friends of ours. One day, this friend comes up to me, pins me against the wall. He's like, did you buy me groceries? Uh, no, I did not buy you groceries. All right, because I don't want people buying me groceries. All right. Did you need groceries? Yes. All right. What happened? He told me this incredible story about groceries showing up on his front door and how, how he didn't, didn't want to receive help from other people, but how appreciative he was. And I know it was you. It was not me. It was not me. In fact, I didn't know who it was. It was my wife. Because we had this giving fund that we could use. And so she had heard, I guess, overheard a conversation at one of our, and so she went out and bought groceries and just set them there. And he interrogated me for a month. And it was so actually fun to know that a friend of mine's need was being met. And, you know, now he doesn't have that need at all. But at that time, to know my wife was prompted to do that. And then that, that idea, that joy just is exponential. Because as the giving fund went up over the years, the ways in which we could hear from God, allowed us to just have enough liquidity financially. We planned to give big so that we could give big when those opportunities came up, which include adoption 10 years ago. Because we planned to give big, we said, you know what, maybe God's calling us to adoption. And adoption of a special need wasn't necessarily on our radar, which has made the need for margin even higher because the, the, the financial needs are rather limitless when it comes to, to special needs. But it was so much joy to plan to give big so that we could give big. And to see that grow over time. How about you? I think of this as the three P's. Are you becoming progressively more generous? Of the things you give to, are you giving to God's priorities? One of those is his church. The place you're getting educated, you spiritually and your family. Are you giving to, to Horizon as one of those priorities? And I hope you are. And God's other priorities like the poor, the needy, family time for vacations. That's one of God's priorities. To enjoy rest together. And recreation together? Do you have some space in your financial world so that when something comes on the radar, there's enough liquidity that you can respond to that, whatever it looks like? Or maybe it's time to reevaluate your giving. I was at a fundraiser recently of an investor who's done quite well for himself here in Cincinnati, a major, major real estate investor, make millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. But he'd been giving to like a hundred different places. And he decided for this last phase of his life, he wanted to be very strategic in his giving. He decided to reduce a hundred places he was giving down to five. And he had chosen this particular ministry or this particular nonprofit with a ministry, but nonprofit we were at, to be one of the five places he was going to funnel large portions of money, monstrous portions of money. He said, instead of giving to a hundred things, I would like to give to five things, and I researched the heck out of it. I decided which would make the biggest difference, where was the biggest need. With incredible joy, he challenged each one of us that day. Here's the kind of gift I'm giving because this is going to help people and going to be my legacy and I want it to be yours. What if you looked at all the nickel and diming you're doing and say, I want to give to things that are really matter to me, to my community, and to my family. Think strategically about that. What would it look like to plan big so you can give big? And I hope as you do that, one of the things you want to give to is Horizon. But this isn't a talk on giving to Horizon. That's certainly an application of it. We certainly need your gifts, and we've got a $3 million budget, and we can't do it without you guys, and this is expensive to run four services and two different services. But God doesn't want something from you. He wants something for you, the joy of being able to respond to and invest in the things that he cares about. In fact, maybe you've read the book uh, called Margin by Dr. Swenson. He's got several books. One of the most recent ones I read uh, is called A Minute of Margin. Just a minute to think about how to put more margin in your life. If you haven't read any of his books, they're fantastic. He was talking about how, if you think about September 11th, for example, 
Everybody's drinking their coffee, having a great day, and boom, in a second, instability hits. And on the 103rd floor, all of a sudden, everything's in jeopardy. And people got on the phones, and you know the first phone call they made on the 103rd floor was not to their stockbroker. It was to their family. It was to their friends. It was an I love you. It was I don't know what's going to happen. It's amazing how the pressure of life, the idea of your own mortality, can all of a sudden put things into focus. Here's what he said in his story, in his book, A Minute for Margin. He said, there was a point in my life when out of necessity I decided to investigate a more margined way of living. Everything seemed out of control. I remember one day in particular, a Tuesday in 1982, I had finished an evening meeting across town and I was beginning to have a migraine at the same time. Meanwhile, back home, my wife Linda went for a late evening walk along the dark street. Her crying could be in private. Interestingly, we had no problems. We had no financial issues. But while we didn't have problems, we had plenty of symptoms. We looked at each other and scratched our heads in puzzlement. Where were these migraines and crying coming from? We made a commitment to remedy whatever was sabotaging our home. Once we understood that overload was the problem and margin was the solution, our question was, where do we start? Setting aside a special evening, we put the kids to bed early, built a fire in the fireplace, and settled down on the living room floor. It was time to make a substantial change. I took out a pad of paper, and I said, let's start by pretending everything in our lives is written on this paper. Every activity, every belief, and every influence. Then let's erase it all. Let's tear up the paper and throw it in the fire. Wipe the slate clean. Erase all our beliefs, our hopes, our dreams. Remove all our possessions. Nothing shall remain. And let's give the pencil to God and ask him to redesign our lives by that which is fully spiritually authentic. As we turned and handed control over to God, no spiritualized elephant took its place. We instantly sensed that our Father had in mind much more than our survival. It was an indescribable feeling. Our redesigned life was simpler. That decision reduced our income a little, but the freedom, the time, and the rest, and the balance was well worth it. We would never look back. Today, because of margin, I no longer dread getting up in the morning or looking around the next corner. Today, when I hang out the gone fishing sign on my door, I don't worry about the opinion of other people. For as I head down the road with my family, I know that the same God who invented both rest and relationship is wishing me a good catch. Isn't that powerful? As we finish up this series today, maybe you want to grab a book on margin by Dr. Swenson. He's got many. And really begin to ask yourself, how do I do this thing? How do I give big? How do I save big? How do I orient my life in such a way that I can be generous in all three of these buckets to the people in my life? But I told you I'd give you two reasons. The first reason, if we don't give big... We don't plan to give big. We're not going to be able to give big. But think of it this way. Think of your money bucket. Again, it's not like there's a lack of money. It's just when it's all committed to other things. Uh, you, you say to yourself, you know, here's, here's the money that I have devoted. We pour it into the tray. We say, well, first thing I want to do is I want to take care of my living expenses. And so we've got living expenses, and there's fun things to do, and you've got your, you know, your necessities and the, the things that are also important, and so you put those into the room. Right? Here's the first thing I want to do. And you put those in place. 
And then, sure enough, you say, here's some luxuries. You know, we want to plan on doing a vacation. You put those plannings together. And sure enough, got the vacations planned. My parents used to have this list. They'd have a list of the top 10 things my dad wanted to do and the top 10 things my mom wanted to do. And they use that top 10 list every year to kind of get on the same page with each other. But you continue to do that, you then have a course, you know, you want to be smart. We talked last week about something you all knew. It wasn't like, oh, I've never thought of savings before, but it was a good reminder. Yeah, I need to put a little bit more room for savings, not just for retirement, but also just in case there was ever a squeeze and I just need to be ready in case something happened, child needs an extra year of college or whatever it was. The problem is, though, if you didn't plan to leave some left over, you'd say, I really want to be generous, but, well, there's just not a lot left on the roll. And it's not that I don't have enough money, it's just already devoted to covering something else. So I only have a little bit left to be generous the way I want to be generous. Instead say, I want to make sure I have some left over every week, every month, every year to give big. And wow, God's smart. I'm doing this and I feel more joy. I don't feel like I have less money, I feel like I have more money and I have more joy in my life when I do this. That's the kind of thing God's getting at here by leaving some some space left over for us to give in a very significant way. But then here comes the second principle. And this principle has literally transformed Western civilization. And it might seem common sense to you or like, oh, I guess that makes sense. But this was revolutionary when it came out. And it comes from Judaism and was then enhanced by Christianity. It's the idea that when you give to others, you're actually giving to God that any gift you give to a human being made in God's image is a chance to thank the God and creator who made you himself where's this idea come from well it actually comes from the Old Testament a man named Abram or Abraham Abraham one day was very very wealthy very very rich lots of livestock he was a farmer lots and lots of uh, fields and such and one day it says the Lord appeared to him so again this is very interesting God appears to him all right? And God's going to tell him to do something. And before I tell you what he's going to do, let me tell you how Jesus references it. Because Jesus says in a parable, let me tell you what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like, it's like leaven, which is yeast. And leaven is always used as a, a symbol of something bad in the Bible. That's a weird thing to say. Let me tell you what the kingdom of God is like. It's like yeast, bad stuff. I'm not saying yeast is bad in our culture, but in, in the Jewish culture, it was considered bad because of unleavened bread. You weren't allowed to eat unleavened uh, bread with leaven in it. So he says the kingdom of God is like somebody who took yeast or bad stuff and dumped it into a woman, uh, which is a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leavened. Does that make any sense to you? Thanks for the clarification, Jesus. The kingdom of God is like a woman taking some bad yeast and dumping it into three measures of meal. And that's it. Like, he didn't clarify Let's try to figure out what that means. Three measures of meal, that phrase comes directly out of the story I referenced earlier about Abraham. Abraham one day, he's on his way, and he sees some strangers coming. It says, the Lord appeared to him. So God himself, his maker, his creator, appears to Abraham. He appears to Abraham, and so Abraham lifts up his eyes, and who does he see? What does the Lord look like? And behold, he saw three men. So here already, this is kind of this mystery. Well, which is it? Is God appearing to him or three people? It's both. Abraham doesn't recognize that hidden amongst the three people is God himself appearing as a human being in the Old Testament. 
And so though the Lord appeared to him, he appeared as a human being. And Abram, seeing three people, three strangers at the side of his field, it says he runs to them. Now, Middle Eastern men do not run. It's considered very undignified. They hardly ever run. In fact, when we were in Israel, we asked one of the uh, Middle Eastern men, what would it take for you to run? He said, um, if a scorpion was about to bite my son, that's about the only thing I can think of where I would run. And Abram runs toward these three people, and he talks to them, and he says, now, my Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, don't pass on, don't just go on by. I will bring morsel of bread. I can't wait to be generous to you, to give you some of my bread to care for you, that you may refresh your hearts. I've got money set aside, bread set aside, water set aside to be generous when people come my way. And as you pass by, inasmuch as you've come to your servant. And they said, all right, do as you did. We'll, we'll receive that. So Abraham again hurried. He ran. He runs back to the tent to Sarah, his wife, and says, quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal. Same phrase Jesus uses 2,000 years later. Now, what is three measures of meal? It's 60 pounds of bread. Imagine you're in the kitchen and your spouse knocks on the door. Honey, company's coming. Could you in the next hour give me 60 pounds of bread? You're going to kill him or her, right? Why didn't you tell me company was coming over? Why didn't you tell me we would need 60 pounds of bread? But think about that. Abraham had so much financial reserve in place. Flour, fine wine, fine wheat that needed to be ground out by hand. But he had in his life three measures of fine meal in reserve to be generous in case strangers came into his life. Now, he doesn't know it's God yet. He just sees this as an incredible opportunity to be generous to people passing through his life. And yet, in being generous to the people, he doesn't know one of them is God. And by giving to others, he's actually giving to God. Jesus picks up on this in the New Testament and says, My kingdom is meant to be generous people. They give generously of themselves. They're patient, generous in long-suffering, generous in their compassion, generous with their bodies and marriage to one another. They're generous financially, generous with their time, they're generous with their energy. God's kingdom is like three measures of meal, just giving above and above and above and beyond the call of duty. But that kingdom's going to have to fight against the fact that somebody's going to try and drop some yeast into the kingdom of generosity and contaminate the whole loaf with self-centeredness. Me, me, meanness. So the kingdom of God is the three measures of meal, living an incredibly generous life. But don't let leaven self-centeredness keep you from the generous life, the kingdom life that I've called you to. That's what he's saying here. I got to see this firsthand. We had a group of about 80 people in Israel several years ago. And as we drive, we called up strangers. We did not know them. We've never been there. These were Bedouins living in Israel. And we called up and said, we have 80 American tourists. Would you like to host? And they were delighted. Because in their culture, hosting, hospitality, generosity is the highest of values. Where in our culture, consumerism is a high value. And generosity is up there, but it's not the top. In this culture, to be hospitable, to be generous to somebody is the highest of values. So we show up 80 Americans. And and several things happen as we sat in their house that day. Number one, the meal they're going to give us is probably the meal they would have had that evening. They're not going to be able to eat. And we tried to, no, no, we don't want to take your food. They were insulted that they weren't 
that we were even pushing back on their generosity. They were delighted to go without a meal if they could host us. We all sat down in a circle, and as we did, this young woman came out, one of the Bedouin women, and rather than like we do, like we keep all the mess in the kitchen, and don't come in the kitchen, you know, we're, that's where all the cooking stuff and all the messy pots are. Or we hire a caterer so that we don't have any messy pots, right? In this culture, they prepare the meal in front of you. She put the pot right before us, and she poured it in, and she mixed it right before us, and we're watching. And then she made a little fire, and she took this, this dome that she'd mixed the the dough in and she flipped it upside down over the fire so it got hot then she would roll out the dough and put it on top of this dome and made this pita bread and it was still hot she'd pick it up flip it over and then we're all 80 sitting around the th- we're throwing this pita around so I got the pita I rip a piece off throw it to you throw it to you it's kind of hot throw 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 we just shared the bread together and what was amazing to me is the spirit in the Middle East which is where Abraham came from or what God spoke to and brought Judaism in place, it was the spirit of generosity toward others is the highest of value. In fact, as we left that day, he said, the family we stayed with is going to actually get to brag a little bit to all their neighbors. All their neighbors are going to, even though they're not going to eat tonight, they're going to feel like, wow, we're so lucky we were able to do this. And all the neighbors are going to be a little jealous that they couldn't do it. And I was struck by the contrast Abraham running to be generous. 60 pounds. You talk about lavish generosity, planning to give big. The New Testament picks up on this idea again when Jesus says, whatever you've done unto the least of these, you've done unto me. So when you give unto others, you're giving to me. Are you running toward being generous? It's amazing. I went down to Belize with a team of men several years ago and it was just amazing to see not only the work they were doing we were building some stuff together painting some things together but the relationship building of walking kind of from village to village we walked into this one little village in Cancun and while we were there a couple of guys on trips said hey we've got a picture of you and your son we have it on our, our refrigerator we pray for you every day as a family at our meal tell us about what's going on tell us about the resource we've been able to give how it's helping how it's making a difference it was one thing just to write a check, which was impressive. It's another thing that I want to spend a week of my vacation here with other friends in my neighborhood. And I want to talk to you. And, and there's a relationship that's building. This was somebody who was running to being generous. Even as a church, we sometimes do that stuff corporately. We have the giving tree, corporate ways to give. We send people down to City Gospel Mission to give. People going to Belize or Cancun on these trips that we give some support with our staff with. In fact, we got a note last month. It's pretty amazing. Uh, uh, one of the things, we, we had like six things we did in the giving tree this year. And we had this note that said this, related to the books that our church donated. We collected 65 of the 75 books that were on the giving tree in December. Blow is a response uh, from Maggie. Maggie's the lady who was saying thanks. They came by and picked up all the books to take to Cancun. Hey all, I picked up the books Friday and just wanted to say thank you. Such a wonderful gift that will bless so many. And on behalf of all of our kids, thank you. Many blessings, Maggie. You talk to the folks who are down to City Gospel. Folks who give a vacation to go on a mission trip. Folks who give regularly say, I want to give a regular gift to Horizon because I just believe in what God is doing in my life. I believe what he's doing in my kids' life. They get more joy. It's not guilt giving. It's not arm twisting giving. It's I love the opportunity to be generous in my life. I'm running toward these opportunities to give. And I get a unique position as the pastor 
one of the pastors here, is I get to hear incredible stories. I was at the hearth room, I think, three weeks ago. A woman came up to me and said, can I just tell you how much God is making a difference in our family? I said, sure, tell me more. She said, I had a son who just, because of some abusive situations in our family life that, you know, we're free from, just really had trouble trusting. And he came and sat near 10 o'clock service. And even at 10 years old, he so enjoyed the messages. I couldn't believe you could talk to me and talk to my 10-year-old, and he would enjoy the music and the message. And finally, after a few months, he got enough courage to maybe go and tiptoe into the children's program. It's like, you know, if he just doesn't hate it, it'll be success. And he liked it. I said, well, that's awesome. She said, but two months ago, he came out of the children's ministry and he said, Mom, I'm volunteering in the light and tech team over there. And I was so excited to see what God is doing and having my son feel loved by men and women, to feel comfortable in the adult service and the children's service, and now to be volunteering, giving of his, of his time. She was just so delighted. And I was so delighted to be part of a community that's running toward generosity in helping people transform their life. In fact, one of the most incredible stories I heard this year was from my friend Morgan. Now, Morgan grew up Jewish. Didn't know a lot about the Bible. He just knew being, Jesus, being Jewish means you don't believe in Jesus. Versus what I'm showing is everything Jesus said. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. He's always talking about the Jewish Bible. And that was a really profound idea for him. The other thing that was profound for him is that Horizon's a place that's about life change. One of our values is transform lives. We're trying to help you transform your life to have the best kind of life. To comfortably connect people to God through the Bible and a community of growing Christ followers. And that's just not some like idea or concept or abstract. It's happening weekly here at this place. So Morgan is known all over the world for being one of the top opera singers. If you saw his life and saw his resume, you'd say to yourself, well, check. That person's happy. That person's figured it all out. Yet God was working in his life just in the last nine months at our service. Never been to a church service before. Never been to a church, that, you know, Christian church or a Bible church. He started coming to our equipping service where we go verse by verse through the Bible. And I've been in the book of Luke and I've been now in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel being the Jewish Old Testament Bible. Luke being the story of Jesus in the New Testament. I want you to hear his story of somebody who on the outside looked like they had everything, and they did. And what God was doing on the inside, that in just a short nine months, through our gifts, through our serving, through our environments we're providing, his whole life, marriage, and family has been transformed. Let's watch. Well, I've worked as an opera singer for many years, and... To many folks, that would seem like a really glamorous life, a life of travel, being on the stage, being in the spotlight. The truth is, I, for many years, have needed that affirmation and have needed that, that confirmation of my self-identity. And I realized that really what was pushing me was this fear of really exploring, is this who I want to be? I've been afraid to truly look in the mirror and try to understand who I am. And I think being on stage in a way was therapeutic because I could be someone else and I wouldn't have to look in the mirror. I was really torn up and completely at odds with myself about this. I, I really related to to the passage in, in James 1 that talks about uh, he who doubts is like a wave tossed by the sea. And I, I told Amy, I'm, I've felt like a, a piece of driftwood just batted to and fro with no real control in my life. And it got to a sort of a fever pitch this fall when I was in Northern California 
literally staying in a vineyard. And I drove home, and it was a beautiful sunset, and the moon is up there in the sky. And meanwhile, I'm just completely in immense pain, wondering why, why can't I just change? Why, why am I continuing to do this to myself and those that I love? I just asked for help, and I asked for guidance, and I'd never, I'd never really done that before. I'd never sort of gotten off of my own throne to that degree before. When I look back on certain events in my life, the most important events, and certainly how Amy and I met, they've been marked by by this uh, phenomenon of, of closing a door so that another could be opened. They've been marked by moments of, in my case, rare courage and, and risk. And whenever I've done that, whenever I've been in a space of true humility and really supplication, asking for help, good things have happened. <laughs> so... So I'm there in Northern California in this vineyard on my knees in the parking lot, ironically in this beautiful place and yet unable to enjoy it and feeling, in fact, really guilty for being there, not being at home in the current of my life in solidarity with my family. I'm thinking it it needs to change no matter what happens. It needs to change. I don't know how, but it needs to change. After that trip in California, when he came home, and I remember he just started to cry. You know, the kids were in bed, and and we were just talking about life, and he said, I don't, I don't know if I can do this anymore. What I heard him to say is that it wasn't so much about the profession. It was about the way he was living his life, and that he didn't want to, as he said, be be the, the king of the kingdom. Growing Growing up the way that I did, you know, most of my friends were Christian. Most of my friends were celebrating Christmas. As a kid, you usually just sort of focus on, on what you're missing, right? And we were missing Christmas. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought in a way that there were these, you know, these warm waters over here that, that we weren't really, we were choosing not to, not to step into, you know? And, and as I got older and most recently, I realized, like, what I realized was that it's been there all along, you know. All I needed to do was turn around, you know. And Amy and our kids have really helped me realize that. The first time he ever, I think, set foot in a, in a Christian church was here at Horizon. And, and, of course, I was saying, like, it's not usually this great. Like, this is really great. You know, this is really, this is really nice. But that first message, you know, that of course, the concept of grace came up. And this was, I think this was actually the beginning, you know, of his um, conversion process, because this was a new idea, the idea that we understand despite all we do, we're going to, we're going to come up short, we're going to be mortal, you know, and so we're going to repent and we're going to try again tomorrow. It was actually kind of heartbreaking because for the first time, I imagined um, a world where you don't know about that, you know, where you feel like all the onus is on you to perform, to be perfect, to be excellent, to see everything, you know, and um, that sounds terrible. I didn't know that I could just decide in a moment that I wanted to go down this path and that I was going to have arms around me. I was going to have someone holding my hand, leading me down that path, you know, that there wasn't going to be any talk about the life I was living before or, or talk of regret or, or doubt 
or self-doubt. No, it was going to be this space of possibility and this space of light and this space of, of joy and understanding. And when I think about margin, I don't really think about this concept of time. You know, there's this extra stuff over here. I think about the space that you're in mentally, you know, being in, being in a space of peace where you suddenly can reach understanding and you can understand things better, you know, and you're not in a space of self-judgment or criticism. You're in that, you're in that space of grace that, that Amy refers to. And I think I'm starting to understand that a little bit. Yeah, I wish every week I could tell you the stories that I hear like that, but not everybody wants to go public with them. So every week I'm kind of distraught because I want to tell you like 20 stories, and yet we respect people's privacy so much here that I can't tell you like 90% of them. But Morgan's one of our stories the last nine months. In fact, I don't know if you've ever been down to Bass Island, but it's been a lot more holy in the last year because Morgan got baptized at Bass Island. It's the holiest that land has ever been over there, if you've ever been fishing there, where they sang uh, at the end. But what we're about as a church is life change meeting people where they are, and helping you take the next step, whatever that is, with no judgment, whatever doubts, whatever challenges, whatever questions you have. We just want to build a friendship. That's why we give. If you give financially to Horizon, I hope you continue to give, because it's stories like this is why we do what we do. Sometimes people come up and say, you know, besides regular giving, is there anything else I can do? And there's always additional projects we have going on in our future growth fund. Several people come up probably, you know, once a month and say, hey, is there anything else I can do? And there's other financial things that I'd love to talk to you about more one-on-one because this isn't a fundraising thing. It's not what this has been about at all. It's been about you trying to experience the best kind of life. When you serve, I I hope after today you say, I want to give big, I want to serve big here at Horizon and in other places. We did a funeral last week, and at the funeral, it was just amazing, a real small funeral. Woman said, I've been coming here for two years, and I can't believe that, Chad, you were willing to do the, the funeral. I said, well, there's a whole team of us to do it, but I'm honored to. And to meet family members who said, I've never learned the Bible the way I've learned it before. I've never been experiencing God the way I have before. I've never felt so comforted. And, and people gather around me, and many of you volunteer at our funerals to just make people, strangers who don't visit, who don't visit here at all, or don't go here at all, feel welcome and feel comforted and feel loved during very difficult times. That's what we're about as a church running toward generosity. And he spoke about grace there, didn't he? Do you remember, I don't know if you've heard the story of the prodigal son, but if you hear the, prodigal, the, story, of the, uh, the story of the prodigal son, it's got that same story of Abraham in it. Remember I told you Middle Eastern men don't run? There's only a few times they run. Abraham running to give generosity to the people to end up being God. Then Jesus tells a story about two sons. One thinks he's very religious, he's done everything right and doesn't need the father, gets mad at the father. Another son who's rebellious. And the religious son and the rebellious son both are distant from God. And in both cases in Jesus' story, the father sees the prodigal son returning and what does he do? He runs to him. Just like Abraham ran to be generous to these strangers who turned out to be God... God the Father runs to you and I to be generous to us. He loves pouring out love and forgiveness and patience and kindness and resources to us so that you and I will do the same. So that we will create a mindset of margin. I hope you do that after the series. Make margin a mindset, but also make a mindset to give unto others as God has given unto you. I want to pray and give you a chance to do just that. To ask God to just live, receive his generosity and extend his generosity. And I also know there's a lot of people who are very fearful. 
with the coronavirus and everything else, we want to pray for our whole community as well. If you want to pray with me, let's pray together. Maybe you just want to begin and say, God, I receive your generosity. God, I need, I need your leadership in my life. I want to know I can be fully and finally forgiven based on what you've done, not what I've done. And God, help me to extend your generosity to me, to those around me. And Father, we, we thank you for promises in the Bible, like the one that says that you have not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Father, I just ask that the spirit of fear that's sweeping across our nation right now, Father, you would allow us to be people who make decisions from a place of confidence and power and love and sound mind, not panic and fear. For those who have been affected by the virus, we ask for healing and restoration. But Father, we ask for a calm and a peace to come upon each one of us here. People will sense that we're coming from a different place with a different spirit. That we would be generous and kind to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this last song may be a song you've heard many, many times, but you never knew it was a song about generosity. It's a song about soaring above just self-centeredness, soaring above just you know, upgradeness. It's about soaring in such a way that you're generous to the people around you. So listen to this song, maybe for the first time, and hear it through the lyrics of what it means to live a generous life soaring like an eagle. Let's listen together. <laughs>